Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Ellen Burkett Morris, author of Lost Girls, a short story collection which explores the experiences of women and girls as they confront the challenges and expectations of womanhood. Uh, Jenny Offal, author of Weather, Department of Speculation and Last Things, called this book a dazzling collection of stories that showcases Morris's impressive ability to hide devastating truths with seemingly small moments. A review of Lost Girls in the Southern Review of Books said, Though vivid snapshots of female struggle, Morris demonstrates the power of women acknowledging one another and themselves in a world where they are continually diminished. The women and girls in these stories hold the antidote to their own erasure and in turn give it to us. Only we can prevent each other from becoming lost girls. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hello, good, glad to be here. Yeah, and you're coming to us all the way from Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, well, that's the magic of remote podcasting, right? We can uh, we can stretch stretch our podcast around around the country and around the world here. So, congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, um, it's uh, a nice collection of stories. I enjoyed reading uh, reading the book, and uh, I I want to start out with this. Uh, quote uh, that I just read in the opening that uh, these stories hide devastating truths with seemingly 
within seemingly small moments. And uh, did you have that in mind when you started writing these stories or was that a theme that just sort of, when you got through, you went, oh, yeah, okay, I see that now. <laughs> you know, I didn't necessarily have it in mind, although I think I recognize it from works of literature that I've read. You know, I'm a big fan of the work of the writer Lee Martin, and Lee Martin does that. He focuses on ordinary people and ordinary moments that uh, become weighted with meaning, you know, uh, in terms of the way he constructs the stories. And so, uh, though it wasn't a goal, I was really pleased to see that that's how she read it. Yeah, and this idea of uh, truth surfaces in other author reviews too. Um, lasting truths that reside in the familiar, uh, and two other author reviewers said you can step back and behold the world and make unexpected discoveries. Um, as you're writing these stories, you're writing them in different points of view. You're writing them in uh, you know, first person, third person, um, but you are the author of these stories. What did you uh, step back and behold at the end of this work when you got through? Ah, you know, it's it, story by story, there were revelations. So in each story, I had a moment when I finished it, when I thought, oh, wow, that's where we ended up. You know, that sort of surprise that you can, that can happen in, in the course of the creative process. Uh, and then, you know, with the collection itself, I had initially developed a collection and had a male photographer from Boston traveling through the South. And it was all about him and his life. And uh, for some reason, uh, folks that were reading it, they liked him okay. They weren't super excited about it. And it occurred to me that the women in the stories, not him, were the most interesting part of the stories. And then there was a point in our culture where people were really turning their attention to the experiences of women at, through that Me Too movement. And it occurred to me that I had a whole bundle of stories that really featured women. And so I went back, I toned down the photographer character in some cases, uh, elevated some of the other characters and found that what I had was a cohesive collection that simply centered on the experiences of women and girls. And that in and of itself was really a revelation. I had, you know, I didn't really know that I had that many stories that would hang together in quite that way, but I was really delighted to find that they did. And, uh, have felt really confirmed as readers, you know, see it as a whole sort of a, a collection that's, that's cohesive and, and pulled together based on those themes. Now you yourself, you, you know, you're a woman, you've grown up, you experienced uh, these moments where, you know, men are not as interesting and they interfere with what, what women are trying to do. Were there any stories in this uh, collection that uh, maybe were more personal to you than, than others? Well, you know, there are a couple of them that really resonate with me. Uh, like I Miss Not Being a Ballerina is about a, a kind of a lonely little girl at, whose, whose best friend's mother is, is getting ready to undergo cancer treatment. And, you know, I remember being a kid and I remember having a best friend and how central and passionate those relationships can be. And, uh, and, and that idea that if anything happens to your parents, it sort of upends your world. Uh, and so, you know, I feel, I feel very tenderly towards that one. The other story that, that really, um, that, that stays with me and, and I, I wrote it kind of straight as a, as a sad story, but, 
people read it really as satire and, and, you know, I read it to groups and they laugh at it is the story religion about the, um, the lonely 30 year old woman who goes to, she thinks she's going to a decoupage class and she ends up in a breastfeeders league meeting. And, you know, it's a, it's a story about really not being seen. And it's a story about being desperately lonely. And, you know, I just remember points in my life when I felt that way and didn't feel a part of a group or wanted badly to be a part of a group. And, you know, that's really what drives her. Those are her motivators. She wants so badly to be accepted that she fabricates the idea that she has this child and she pursues this goal of breastfeeding. So, uh, so again, I wrote it straight, but people think it is funny. It's really funny, but it's also really sad. So I know I saw, I saw both sides of that when I read that story. Uh, So how does the, how does the writer brain have someone accidentally join a lactation group at a church? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, my writer brain started off with a premise, which was that social groups can be like cults. You know, they can be warm and all embracing, but they can also really want to control how you behave and what you think about. And so I started with that premise, you know, let's put this woman in a cultish situation and see what she does. But she just fell right into it. Boy, she loved it. They were so warm and wonderful. She just decided she was going to stay. So uh, it was, it was, that was a bit of a shocker for me. It, it just turned the story completely. It was no longer about cults. It was all about, you know, uh, love and loneliness. I love how you say that was a, completely a shocker to me. And and some people don't understand this who haven't uh, written a lot, but I mean, I get surprised all the time by the things that show up on the page when I'm writing. And is that, is that something you experience as well? It is. It is. And, and, you know, sometimes I have to wrestle with the story. So the story inheritance, I really, really wanted to give that woman an easy way out of a difficult situation. And I put her on a train and I thought, oh, I'm going to let her escape. And then it really occurred to me that that wasn't very realistic given the the time that she lived in and her circumstances. And so I had to come up with another ending. And, uh, it was painful and hard, but I did it. I found yeah. one. It wasn't a happy ending. This is a the story I remember of a young woman whose family worked for an affluent family. Uh, it's not clear if she was a slave or not, at least as I recall it. But she becomes pregnant after one of the men in the family rapes her. Um, she tries to flee, but she's caught and brought back. And she does something you wouldn't expect. Um, I'm not going to give it away. But... Uh, as you said, it's not a happy ending. Yeah, not all these stories have happy endings, right? Right, but, right. Yeah. <laughs> I've been getting a little blowback from people. My uh, my cousin's uh, wife said, "Oh, how do you how can you ask people to buy a story and read these stories and get gutted over and over again?" And you know, my response to that is, "I'm really glad I made you feel something." You know, that's yeah. kind of my goal. Well, you don't want it to be too predictable either, right? And you want it, unless, of course, it's true to life. And and in that sense, you want to bring out, uh, you know, the characters and what they're dealing with. So you've got some of these stories or many of these stories are set in a a location, a small town called Slocum. Uh, Tell us about Slocum. Yeah, you know, I I was attending a writer's workshop at the Kenyon Review Writer's Workshop, and they make you generate material while you're there. And, uh, you know, we'd have different prompts. I remember, you know, a photograph uh, of a reflection in a window. And and so some of these characters and stories were really first born in that sort of a setting under pressure to write during the week that I was there. Uh, And and I found that I had sort of conceived of this idea of this small town Slocum and East 
Western Kentucky small town, one where everybody thought they knew each other, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, that's really that, you know, part of the part of the motivator was this idea of unveiling our true selves versus, you know, who we think we're presenting to those people around us. And that idea that when you make assumptions about what you know about people, you can often be wrong because we all have so many layers and and secrets and and, uh, desires and quirks that, uh, you know, we don't reveal to other people. And so that's really where the fun was in exploring the characters. I really, in some ways, thought of Sherwood Anderson's uh, uh, Winesburg, Ohio, and his characters who each, you know, who were each quirky in a particular way. You know, I was like, okay, what what is this person's obsession going to be? What is this person's quirky thing going to be? And that's a fun thing to have uh, in a story as a writer, because that drives everything else once you know what they want. Yeah. And you're going to uh, do a little reading here in a few minutes. Um, uh, but that um, takes the uh, title of the book, uh, Lost Girls. And I'm looking at the book cover now. And I, I like to do this with the authors on the show to, to have them sort of describe. You can't, listen, you can't see it. You can't see if you go to the show notes at charlotteroospodcast.com because I'm going to put it there. But uh, let's describe for the listeners what, what they see on this cover. Um, kind of a topi-ish look. Uh, there's the mountains in the distance. I love the train track. And describe who's walking on the train track. There's a girl who who looks like she's kind of on the cusp of womanhood. She looks like she could be maybe a, a teenager. And she's walking barefoot along this railroad track with her arms in the air in a really sort of free-floating and play, playful way. The wind is blowing her skirt. It's blowing her hair. And uh, we're trying to figure out, you know, whether or not she's uh, headed into some danger. There's sort of a, there's a hint of playfulness. There's a hint uh, of danger to it. Um, yeah. And when I saw the image, I knew that had to be the cover. Yeah, it looks like she's carefree. Her dress is sort of swinging like it's in the breeze or from her hips moving. And she's balancing on one rail and a red polka dot dress with a little white uh, belt around the the waist there. So, yeah, nice image. I love the track, you know, going in the distance there, um, which is kind of a setup for the story you're going to read. Uh, but, but before you read that, uh, just the title lost girls um that's kind of a theme that runs through the book with these different stories speak to that just a moment yeah yeah so you know i think that i think in each of these stories there's a woman who one way or another feels that she's lost her way uh and yet you know loss isn't the i I don't think loss is the end note on all of these stories i think in many cases people find ways uh to find themselves they find ways to honor the experience of other women or to find their way back to themselves the person they thought they had lost uh and they you know they find ways to lift each other up so that while they are lost for period, you know, ultimately, I think the message is is more largely uplifting that you could make choices or that you can reach out in ways that then help you find your way out of the thing that you're dealing with, or at least help you make it through. All right. Well, that's uh, that's a good setup. We've got uh, the the title story having to be the first story in the book. It's only a couple of pages. Uh, so I'm going to have you read the the entire story, and then we'll come back and talk some more about uh, some themes of the book in your writing life. Okay, it's uh, Lost Girls. 
When I was 18, 13-year-old Dana Lampton disappeared from the strip mall across from her family's apartment. My mind should have been on other things, guys, college, getting past the ID checker at the door of the club, but Dana's disappearance captured my attention. We lived in the same neighborhood, and the nearness of the crime creeped me out. As a kid, even before Dana disappeared, I was sure that I would be the girl that was taken. I was always on edge waiting for the next catastrophe, the next fight, my dad moving out, my world collapsing around me as my mother cried day after day. With me gone, those don't-tell-your-father shopping trips wouldn't have happened. My dad wouldn't have anyone to complain to about my mom either, her stupidity, her tackiness. Not that anyone would notice if I was gone. My parents were so busy fighting that a change of scenery would have been appealing at times. Why not abduction? The kidnapping of Patty Hearst made the possibility seem even more real to me. Forget the fact that my family had trouble putting together enough money to take a family vacation or buy a new car, much less raise a pile of ransom money. After Patty was taken, any middle-aged man walking down my street with his hands in his pockets was cause for alarm. I almost freaked when my new friend's hippie dad pulled up in pulled up to the yard where we were playing and yelled for us to get into the van. Images of child slavery rolled through my head. I'd be kept in some commune, forced to mix batches of granola and make homemade yogurt day and night. I even dreamed about being kidnapped. My captor bore a striking resemblance to the 70s television character Archie Bunker. In the dream, his mother, a kindly gray-haired lady, offered me cake. I woke up in a cold sweat, convinced I'd tasted the icing. As time passed, I realized that I was just too old to be kidnapped anymore. Dana had taken my place. When she came up missing, the FBI combed every inch of the nearby field. The local paper ran her picture once a week for the first year. When I saw her parents on television arm-in-arm united in their grief, I had a flash of envy. My parents had divorced four years before, wrapped up in their own lives. While I tried to figure out high school and how to keep my grades up on my own, my parents requested my presence for drunken midnight weeping sessions and second marriages. I always showed up. Years went by, and still there was no sign of Dana. How does somebody just vanish? In my imagination, I see her getting older, locked in at night, moving from apartment to apartment, somebody's prize, and me on the outside following my usual routine, school, dates, graduation, college, first job. Sometimes I feel like I'm living for the both of us. I stop and look around, noticing my freedom, the feeling of the sun on my face, my ability to hop in my car and go wherever I want. Why, Dana? I could only guess it was an accident of timing. Who knows how often we cruise the aisles of the grocery store next to a sex offender or drive away from the convenience store as a robber pulls into the lot. Is it fate? Karma, there are no free rides, that's for sure. All we can do is watch her backs and hope for the best. I can't seem to forget her. Each birthday, I do a quick calculation, comparing her would-be age to my own. Every few years, I come here and leave something for Dana, tampons, an old set of car keys, a graduation cap. She'll be 21 this year. Tonight, I'll leave this bottle of Jack Daniels. By morning, it'll be gone. This this is a... Interesting story as I read it and I thought about it, and as I'm listening to you read it again, um, you know, e- even short stories have an art to them. And, and you you can see in this story, at first, uh, you sort of, or at least I was, 
caught aback by her sort of cavalier idea, you know, approach to kidnapping and abduction. I mean, it was in her high school mind. It's like, you know, my parents aren't really paying attention to me. Why can't I be kidnapped? At least they'd be, you know, a little bit concerned at that point, maybe even holding hands, holding a press conference. But then you move from there to, you know, the more grown up uh, narrator here. Um, how do you do that in three pages? <laughs> <laughs> you know that, yeah, that is, that is the trick. So, uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure I have the answer except to say that originally, I, you know, I, I conceived of this as uh, wrote it kind of as a um, dramatic monologue. So, you know, somebody on stage sort of narrating, standing at the spot where she's, in fact, it, it, it got a staged reading at Cincinnati's Arnoff Center through the Cincinnati Playwrights Initiative. So, you know, I had her. I had the grown the grown woman standing at the spot where the kidnapping had occurred, ready to leave the whiskey bottle. And I think that was a uh, thinking of it that way really helped me frame it as a bit of storytelling, which you know helped shift back and forth between that, as you said, that younger perspective and that grown up perspective. So I don't know. However, it happened. I'm glad it did. <laughs> That's great. Well, it's a great lead for the for the book. Um, Let's talk about some of the other themes that you cover here. You talked about, you know, the lost girls. Um, you focus on um, pregnancy and motherhood. You talk about uh, the death of a child. Uh, you deal with the rape and the rape culture and exploring sexuality all, all the, and child abuse, all these things, uh, you know, disappearing girls like you have in this story here, uh, divorce, infidelity. I mean, you hit a lot of different uh topics in this book uh but you also but you focus on them from the from the perspective of the women who are impacted by it and to some extent you're trying to tell that story um so you're a woman you're telling the story from that perspective does that help uh does your own experience uh in life uh what you've seen what you've heard did it influence these stories or is or is this a lot of imagination or a combination of both. You know, it's a combination. It's a, it's a, you know, I like to say that the emotions that are depicted are real. There are things I've felt before, many of them, not all of them, um, but but that the scenarios are fictional. Um, you know, uh, that said, you know, there was a kidnapping that happened uh, when I was 18 years old. The girl was 13. I lived in an apartment building across a field from uh, from a, the mall, and she disappeared at the mall. And I remember at that point how powerless I felt. You know. Uh, when that happened and how much sympathy I had for her and her family, I, it, the kidnapping actually ultimately ended up with the creation of the center for uh, missing and exploited children. Um, so uh, that, that event stayed with me. And I think what I was trying to do as a, as a, as a writer was think of a way to have that sort of an experience happen to somebody and have them make something meaningful of it. So that idea that she could go to the place where it happened and honor the girl was really compelling to me. And so it was very cathartic to do that creatively, you know, to, to create a story where that happened. Other stories are, are, you know, just completely made up of a whole cloth, you know, um, I, but as I said, you know, that the emotions are, are, you know, everybody, I think we've all had that a range of, of emotions that would fit into a variety of, of challenging scenarios. So the real trick was um, 
settling on the character and and populating the story with details and sort of following through in a way that would really clearly reflect you know how that character might act in that particular situation you know mm. um, yeah, you've talked about of course you've read lost girls you talked about the inheritance you talked about religion there's a story called harvest in the book uh, a 70 year old uh, named abby removes all the mirrors from her home because she's lamenting the loss of her beauty as she aged. And I found that interesting. Is, is that all it takes? I mean, we just, we, I just go over here and take the mirrors out and I'll be fine. I won't age a, a day longer. That's so funny. I, you know, I, I, I'd heard about take, I heard about, I think I'd heard about the Jewish ritual of covering the mirrors when somebody dies and it fascinated me. And I thought, yeah, you know, wouldn't that might, might that not be perhaps your first step <laughs> if you don't want to, if you don't want to look at your aging self that you'll just cover those mirrors and she could live in her memories of being a beauty queen. And, and so I had her give it a shot, you know, all the while she hires some guy to come and paint over the mirror that she had in her shop. And she's kind of looking at him and lusting after him as if she was the beauty queen that she had been, you know, back when she was younger. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I love, I, again, it's this sort of fascination with the outside and the inside, what people would see when they looked at her and what resides in her heart, you know, how she feels about herself. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to explore. She didn't have to look in the mirror to find the love that uh, she was searching for, right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Okay, so let's do this. Let's talk uh, with some time we have remaining a little bit about the writing life. Um, you are an award-winning writer. You you're a teacher. You're editor. Uh, you um, you got these uh, stories, but you've written quite a bit. Um, and just you know, I'm sometimes curious about how authors find their way into into writing. Uh, you told me that your father wrote detective fiction. Set around the racetrack in Kentucky. Tell us about that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So he he had a, a fictional uh, a private eye, Michael Reinhardt, uh, who worked out of an office in downtown Louisville, who got himself pulled into all kinds of adventures around, set around the racetrack and horses and that sort of thing. So what that meant is that I grew up with a father who who I watched write all the time. You know, I'd run through the apartment, I'd be going outside or going to get a snack, and he'd be at the typewriter on the dining room table. Just just working away. And I thought, oh God, that looks like misery. But, you know, the thing that he did was he was big on stories. So he would, he, I had, I had two sisters. He'd read us wink and blink and a nod, you know, as if each of us was one of the characters. He would take us to the story hour and then hand to God, he would read us Flannery O'Connor short stories at bedtime. Mm. <laughs> you know, powerful stuff, uh, stuff, the stuff of nightmares and drama, but yet really compelling, uh, really compelling stuff. So, you know, grew up in a house surrounded by books. You know, he, he himself came from Detroit. He was sort of a street tough guy, you know, didn't have a lot of formal education. He had books on philosophy and uh, literature and art. And he was a really uh, self-taught a person and somebody who loved knowledge and loved the written word. And so it was a great way to grow up that way. Uh, it was mm -hmm. just fantastic. Well, I had uh, my roommate was uh, from Mount Sterling, Kentucky. Uh, and uh, we both went to Davidson together and uh, I went back to visit him. He's still there now, but uh, we, we went to the races in Louisville, the, Churchill Downs, you know, when we were in college. And I wouldn't want any stories to be written about any of that because, uh, you know, if you've ever been to the infield at Churchill Downs, <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, quite 
uh, a, it's kind of like it's something you should do one, once in your life, I think, you know, if you can. But, uh, okay, well, look, so you, you, you grew up in a house that had books and stories and you're not reading. He's not reading you Cinderella at, when you're at bedtime. He's reading you Flannery or Connor and all these things. And so it started to be seeping into your blood. And, and then you started. So so did you did you become a writer first, a teacher first, uh, a little bit of both at the same time? What How did that develop for you? writing jobs. I was a freelance journalist. So I had columns like I did a health column for the state monthly magazine. And I did a a, a sort of a woman about town column for the women's magazine and a health, and a home and garden thing that I picked up for the courier for a brief period. So I was a freelance writer and I love to write and it was just a way to write. And it was more like putting the pieces of a puzzle together to write a journalistic piece. Whereas I think uh, you know, creative writing is more like painting a picture on a canvas. You know, it's a whole different thing. But I was afraid to to be a creative writer. I was afraid of failure. And so I was around 32 years old and I looked myself in the eye and I thought, you know, if you're ever going to do this, you've got to do it now. Mm-hmm. It, you know, so I so I started. And I started in earnest and I, you know, started with poetry. I have a poetry chat book and, and started to kind of build my skills, uh, got published in some some really modest journals and built my confidence, you know, and I kind of worked my way through through the disciplines that way. And I did a lot of writing workshops, uh, the Antioch Review Writers Workshop, the Kenyon Review Writers Workshop. I went to the Key West Literary Seminar and, and poetry and, you know, began to feel like I was part of a community. And the feedback I got from those things gave me the confidence to explore even further. And then finally, when I came into some good luck uh, financially, because they're so expensive, I was able to invest in an MFA program. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I picked the MFA program at Queens University, Charlotte, um, because the faculty was just stellar. And when I got there, you know, the people that I was sitting around, but my peers were just amazing. You know, it was really a, a, a great experience to do a total immersion uh, into literature. And uh, and so it was, you know, it was like during my first semester there that that the story religion got accepted in the Antioch Review. And, and I got this feeling, you know, you're onto something, keep going. Um, yeah. But, you know, I worked slowly and steadily to kind of build my skills in that area. And now, you know, the next frontier for me, I'm still writing short stories and, and flash fiction and poetry and essays, but the, the next frontier is the novel. I have a, a fully a novel that's complete that I'm sending around. I've, I'm starting the second draft of another one. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. You can see how how comfortable I am with short form. So I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to pull it off or not. But anyway, I'm trying. Well, I, got, I got one or two questions about that, but that's a good transition, listeners. Uh, one of the things that uh, Ellen and I are going to do in just a few minutes, we're going to jump over to our Patreon channel. We're going to record an episode for all of our Patreon supporters, uh, and it's going to be about writing across genres. We might talk a little bit about plot as well. But uh, you can you can check that out uh, if you're a supporter. You'll already get it uh, automatically. But uh, you know, for as little as five dollars a month, you can get access to that. And all the episodes we put out there is for folks who help us help authors give voice to the written words, help us cover some costs. And uh, it's sort of my—I haven't gotten my EMFA, but uh, it's sort of my way to get a cheap MFA by interviewing all these authors about all the trips, and te- <laughs> tricks, and techniques that they've used, uh, both in the writing craft and in the business of writing. So jump over there and learn with us. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. We'll be getting to that in a moment, but we're not quite through here yet uh, because I wanted to ask you, Ellen, um, these stories are, 
Um, you know, sometimes a short story, when they say short, it can be eight or 9,000 or 10,000 words, you know, approaching a novella sometimes. But, uh, and, and flash fiction, I think, is sort of anywhere between 50 words and 500 words or something. Your stories are on the on the end closer to the flash fiction than they are the long stories. And I'm just wondering about that. Is that a technique that you uh, gravitate toward? Because, I, you know, rem was, maybe it was Mark Twain. You know, if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. I think it does. I think it's harder sometimes to write a shorter short story than it is a longer short story. Right, right. And, you know, I would say, I mean, I am I am a big fan, you know, in spite of uh, my women-centric stories, I am a big fan of the work of Hemingway and the, the, his economy of language and what he's able to do with, with so few words. And, you know, read quite a bit of that as I was coming along a, as a writer. You know, I also think I'm sort of a big, I have a predisposition towards, uh, towards those peak moments. You know, I'm the kind of person who might go to church and sit there and, you know, say, wait a minute, I'm not having any kind of revelatory thing, but I bet that person over there is having one. So, you know, so if I get into a story, sometimes I like to go just right, you know, as as speedily as I can to the sort of the most intense, uh, impactful part of it. Um, so, you know, the, uh, the the trick, I think, is doing that in a way that, that where they still feel complete. And I think I, I think I achieved that. I, I think some readers want more and I get that, you know, so so that's really a part of myself I'm attempting to cultivate as to how to settle in and maybe linger a little bit longer. You know, so if you check out my short stories, you'll see that I don't have a I'm not a, a huge describer of setting. I'm not I'm not really going to, you know, do a lot of that. Uh, and and yet, you know, we'll see. Maybe I'd benefit from doing more of that. But but you know, there are elements that that you know that I gravitate toward, and that's what I'm doing in there. And uh, yeah, it's it's strange. It is it is a it is a particular stylistic thing, you know. And that's um, one of my teachers at Queens said you're a pro stylist, and I had to go look it up. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, so how have you found? moving into the world of novel writing to be, you know, somewhat challenging for you because you, 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 you sort of mastered this craft here of, of economy of words and short stories, but now you've got to, you've got to spin out a whole longer story. You've got to do more character development. You've got to, you know, maybe talk a little more about that setting. What was the thing that you found to be most difficult to, uh, about that transition? Yeah, I think that for me, with the first novel that I worked on, it was it was figuring out how to roll out a plot, you know, and and, and so it's a story uh, called Beware the Tall Grass that's a dual narrative between the mother of a son who has past life memories and the soldier whose memories the son has. And so um, what I really did is made it easy on myself because I picked a very specific battle in Vietnam and I knew that this soldier was headed for that battle and I had historic accounts of what was going to happen there. Uh, so that helped me on that end. So I had that part pretty much. I knew I was going to go from here to here to here and then decide what was going to happen in his life while he was while he was over there and while he was occupying that ground. Uh, on the other side, though, it was, you know, sort of this mother's journey through the challenge of how she thinks she's going to have this kid and it's going to be a blank slate and she's going to get to mold it. And instead, he's full of all these horrible memories of Vietnam 
and she has to uh, help him manage that. And she has to figure out how best to help him and how to get to the bottom of what's happening with him and why he's saying these things and why he knows these things that no child should know. Uh, and so that, you know, so plot was really the thing for me. How do I, how do I roll this out in the right kind of way? All right. We're going to talk a little bit about that when we go over our Patreon channel. So, uh, uh listeners, uh, you can find out more about uh, Ellen at our website, charlotteridgepodcast.com. Uh, there's links to how to find her and her books and everything there. So, Ellen, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.